All right, Revelation 12. We return to our regular broadcasting from our Mother's Day side journey last week. Hope you were blessed with our study on Elizabeth. And uh, this morning we're going to pick it up in Revelation chapter 12. So Revelation chapter 12. And I have to confess, there's going to be a lot of Scripture reference this morning. And so um, if you miss a verse that I reference, I won't be reading all of them, uh, like turning to all of them. But uh, if you miss a reference, um, you can go online to our church website where you see the messages, you know, if you want to listen to it or stream it. Uh, We usually have all the verses that I I, uh, reference uh, attached to that as well. So, or you can just come ask me. I actually have a copy of my notes up here because my iPad uh, didn't work. So if you want my physical notes, you can have those and, you know, get the scripture verses as well. So, but we closed out chapter 11 with the seventh trumpet, which announced the whole theme of the book of Revelation. The king is coming. And that Seventh trumpet brought about the final horror of the last three trumpet judgments, that humanity's time to decide who they're going to follow is now up. Final judgment will be brought against those who reject Christ's reign. But it it does leave us with a few questions. I mean, probably the most burning question I have is, how on earth are people going to see all these things happening and still resist the Lord? Um, You know, how does the Antichrist convince so many to follow him? We're going to Learn about that. How does humanity make their final choice? What happens to those who reject the Antichrist and decide to follow the Lord? You know, and then, of course, what choice does Israel make? Well, those questions are left to us, and chapters 12 through 14 are going to answer all of those questions for us. But it does so in a very interesting format. It sets the the final world stage with a series of signs, of symbols, that introduces all the major players of the Great Tribulation period, that seven-year period that Revelation is dealing with. And it explains what happens after that seventh trumpet is blown and how all the events affect the remaining years before Jesus returns. So we're going to see how far we get into these signs that set this final world stage this morning in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. So what we see here is this opening where it says, John says, there appeared a great wonder in heaven. The word wonder here means an event which is regarded as having special meaning, symbolic meaning, a sign. Uh, It's a great sign, which means it literally translates to a mega symbol or a mega sign. In other words, this is a very important symbol or sign. Now, it's it's important for us to understand that the Bible is now indicating to us it's speaking symbolically. Now, if the Bible does not indicate to us it's speaking symbolically, it's best to approach it literally because If we don't approach something literally when it doesn't tell us it's speaking symbolically, we can make the mistake of making ourselves the authority rather than letting the scriptures be the authority. We can put into the scripture or put into a text what we think it means rather than let the scripture speak for itself. So these are the things that that we're going to look at here since it's saying it's symbolically speaking now. This is what we're going to, how we're going to look at it. We're going to try to understand it symbolically. Now, it mentions this sign is a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. 
My wife is gloriously beautiful, but she's not clothed with the sun. The moon's not under her feet. And she doesn't wear a crown of 12 stars. This is obviously not a normal individual that's being referred to here. Now, some propose that this woman represents the church or possibly even Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, it's very common uh, in Roman Catholic art to depict Mary standing on the moon or with the sun shining behind her head or with stars surrounding her or wearing a crown of 12 stars. However, this is not a guessing game. I don't need special revelation. I don't need a creative mind to understand the symbol here. And, and I before we get into what it is by looking at the Scripture, I can't afford to get this mega sign wrong. You and I, if we're going to understand the book of Revelation correctly, we cannot afford to get this important sign wrong because if we get it wrong, it will influence how we understand the next three chapters with all the other symbols that are here. Now, one rule when you're interpreting your Bible is that the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Okay? Since it's inspired, it's best to find out what it has to say about itself. That way, we don't get our fallible ideas involved. And so when we see a symbol in Scripture, we must first ask, does the Bible explain this symbol elsewhere? And the Bible does so for this sign in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 and 10. So if you'll turn there with me, we will glance at this. Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. Now, context of Genesis 37 is Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, has been having dreams. Dreams that are describing his future, that his family is going to bow down uh, before him. And so Joseph um, naively decides to share such information with jealous siblings. And in doing so, he earns their ire. And, and so we get to verse 9, and we get to one of these dreams that he has, and he shares it with his brothers. In Genesis 37, verse 9, he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more, literally an, an, a second dream, another dream. And behold, check this out. It's pretty interesting. The sun and the moon and the 11 stars made obeisance to me. They bowed down to me. Isn't that crazy? It is a crazy dream. So he told it to his father as well and, and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to you to the earth? Isn't that interesting? You know, we see here that Jacob doesn't only, I mean, Joseph isn't just referencing these symbols, but Jacob explains or interprets these symbols, and we know that this is inspired by God. We see the symbol here that the sun, the moon, and the stars are representative of Jacob, Rachel, and then Joseph's brothers, right? So when we look here, we can see these symbols again and know that they have the same meaning. We don't need to just look at that, though. We notice here that before we get to the sun, moon, and stars, it mentions that the woman is clothed with these things. In other words, she has been dressed in these things. This is not her normal, innate, natural state. When we look at the nation of Israel, which is when we talk about Jacob, Rachel, and the 12 sons of Israel, certainly we're thinking of the nation of Israel. When we look at the nation of Israel, there was no nation of Israel originally. When, when after the flood occurred and then mankind decided they weren't going to obey God and spread out, God confused their languages and then mankind kind of settled all over the world. And when they did so, it, there was no Israel in that mix. There's no nation of Israel in the original table of nations. Abraham was a Sumerian, but God called him out of the Sumerian city of Ur and promised to make him, to create something new, something that he was not naturally, 
a new nation, a new thing, something that was originally naked but would now be clothed with something new. And God uses this same exact language uh, to describe Jerusalem in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 3 through 7, as a naked woman whom he has clothed. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 3 through 7, God speaking to Ezekiel says to him, thus says the Lord, verse 3, say to them, thus says the Lord God unto Jerusalem, your birth and your nativity is of the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite, your mother was a Hittite. And as for your nativity, in the day that you were born, your navel was not cut, Neither were you washed in water to supple you. You were not salted at all. You were not swaddled at all. None I pitied you to do any of these things unto you, to have compassion upon you. But you were cast out, thrown out into the open field to the loathing of your person in the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and I saw you polluted, dying in your own blood, I said unto you, when you were in your blood, live. Yea, I said unto you, when you were in your blood, live. And I have caused you to multiply as the bud of the field, and you have increased and waxed great, and you are come to excellent ornaments. Your breasts are fashioned, your hair is grown, whereas you were naked and bare. God describes Jerusalem in this language of a naked woman whom he has clothed. The city wasn't originally Israeli, it was a Canaanite city, but God clothed it with the nation of Israel. So when we Look at these symbols. We know they speak of Jacob, Rachel, and Jacob's 12 sons who later became the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. And thus, this woman who has been not an original nation but was made a nation clothed with these things introduces our first major player in the end times, the nation of Israel. Now, this first sign clearly is introducing Israel from her origins, where she began. So before we get to the events that are going to occur in Israel during the Great Tribulation, this mega sign, this very important sign, first takes us through Israel's history with a few of the other major players in the end times. Look at verse 2. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. She was shouting out, crying out, because she was pregnant and in labor pains, experiencing labor pains, but that's not the only reason she's crying out, because she was also pained to be delivered. Being regularly tortured is the most literal translation of that. Being regularly persecuted in her delivery. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and, and then the nation of Israel all received this covenant from God to be the nation through which God would bring his Messiah the one who would rescue us from our sin and, and who would rescue us from the enemy of our souls. But they carried around that promise for centuries, you know, pregnant in a sense. The promise was there, pregnant, but not yet here. And carrying that promise around for those centuries drew the ire of Satan who believes if he can wipe Israel from the map, then God's plan can't happen. We see evidence of it going on right now as, you know, rockets are being, you know, shot into civilian areas you know, with, with no military intent at all. Israel and the line, and particularly the line of the Messiah, have a history of genocide attempts, of murderous coups, and of the enemy tempting the nation to get God to discipline them, judge them through idolatry. All of these things for the purpose of somehow thwarting God's promise. 
It's been a painful and difficult pregnancy for Israel. When we look at the story of Adaliah, the queen, you know, the queen mother of Israel, she was married into the family, a descendant of Jezebel and, and, and Ahab, and married into the southern kingdom of Judah. And when I think it's her son died, uh, she decided to take the throne and to kill all of her grandchildren. Wonderful grandmother, right? I didn't preach about her on Mother's Day. Thank the Lord for that. Maybe next month, next year. Don't be an Adaliah. But one of them survived, Joash, little eight-year-old boy. The high priest hit him. And eventually, eight years later, I believe, he took the throne back from Adaliah. That was a close call. Israel has experienced this pain throughout history, the difficulty, a painful, difficult pregnancy. And thus, it makes sense that the next player on the stage is the enemy of our souls. He doesn't come onto the stage just at the end. He has been on the stage with Israel for a long time. And so verse 3 shows the next sign. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. It's not a mega sign, but it is still an important sign. There appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, check this out. Look, behold, pay attention, listen. This is important. A great, a massive red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Here we are introduced to our second player, the dragon. And we don't need to look very far because verse 9 tells us who he is in this chapter itself. And the great dragon, the great dragon which was cast out, that old serpent, called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world, he was cast out. So we know this is Satan. Now it mentions here that he is, has seven heads. He's this massive red dragon with seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns, literally diadems upon his heads. This is not the crown of victory, the Stephanos, that where it says we run to obtain a crown, that victory crown. That's not the crowns we'll receive uh, from the Lord for our faithfulness to the Lord, our rewards in heaven. This is the crown of royal authority. That's interesting. Why is Satan wearing a crown or seven crowns of royal authority, complete authority on the earth? Well, in the Gospel of John, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world three times. It says Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, when uh, Jesus is taken by the enemy during his time of temptation in the desert to the mountains, and it says that Satan shows him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory, and he says, all these things will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. I've always found it interesting that Jesus said, you can't offer that, it's not yours. He doesn't say that. He says, you shall worship, the, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only and, him only, and only him and him only shall you serve. He quotes scripture to him. He doesn't debate with Satan. Now, Satan has been a usurper the entire time. It's not rightfully his. That's why the Bible says that after Jesus died, he snatched the keys of death and hell. Didn't belong to the enemy. He's a squatter. But it is important for Satan to present himself this way because his whole plan, the whole mystery of iniquity is wrapped up in this idea that he has authority on the earth. 
You know, the seven heads with the ten horns is a reminder of something we learned when we went through the book of Daniel, right? Remember Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, when it talks about the fourth great beast that's going to be around during the end times? It mentions there are three other beasts that are around in the end times, three other world powers, but this one will dwarf them all. It will cow the other ones into submission. And it mentions that it has seven heads and seven with ten horns and seven crowns. The seven heads here, this final kingdom that represents Satan's plan for the world, the mystery of iniquity. You see, Satan's plan requires a kingdom and it requires a king. With him, Satan is the power behind both those things. And thus we see him right here in the beginning of his relationship with Israel, crowned with his plan. Destroy Israel. Prevent the Messiah from being born. Set up a false Messiah. Set up a false kingdom. That's the mystery of iniquity. That's his plan. Revelation 19 verse 12 describes Jesus as the king of kings, and it says he has many crowns upon his head. So Satan seeks to supplant that role. And thus he dresses himself this way, and he positions himself to destroy the real king when he's born. Verse 4. It says, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Before we get to this idea of him camping out beneath, you know, the, the birthing of, of this child, this Messiah, it mentions that his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Ancient records Speak of, uh, uh, speak of dragons describe their tails being far more dangerous than their jaws because their tail swipe could destroy anything it lashed out at. When it says here it drew, it means to drag along or sweep away. And it did, as a result, sweep down, throw down, the word speaks of suddenness, these stars, a third of them, to the earth. So clearly, this is not just, you know, Satan swiping at something. This is an attack of Satan that is at least partially successful, only 33% successful to be exact. So the question is, well, what are the stars that he drags with him to the earth? Well, they are certainly different ones than the woman is clothed with because it mentions she's crowned with these stars. They're not just sitting in the heavens. So there are two possibilities for who these stars or what these stars are. Option number one is that these stars reference Satan persuading other angels to join him in his wicked plan. In Job 38 verse 7, it calls the angels stars. It refers to them as morning stars. In Jude uh, verse 6, uh, Jude is reminding them that the angels who didn't keep their first estate, the word first estate means their normal habitation or their proper domain. The angels, they did not keep their proper domain, but they left their own habitation, the place God created for them. And, and as a result, he has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we know that there were some angels besides Satan who were judged. Um, verse 8 uh, tells us here in Revelation chapter 12 uh, or verse 7, actually, that there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. So we know that angels fight with Satan against the faithful angels. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, it tells us that Jesus saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So the 
casting down, the sudden sweeping down that occurs here, you know, could it refer, of the third of the stars, could it refer to that event in heaven when Satan convinced the third of the angels to rebel with him and then the Lord just said, be gone and whammo, you know, lightning, that's how hard he hit the ground and they all hit the ground, you know. That could be what this is referring to here. There's a second option though, And it is that the stars reference Satan's partial successes against the nation of Israel over the years. For example, in Daniel 8 verse 10, it uses this language to describe the persecution of the Jews from Antiochus Epiphanes um, in Daniel chapter 8 verse 10. In Daniel 8.10 it says, referring to Antiochus Epiphanes, the little horn that, you know, persecuted Israel, it says, and it, the little horn, waxed great, even to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. And as you read through the rest of the chapter, you know that's referring to his persecution of Israel. So when it uses this type of language, it's possible that This is referring to Satan's persecution, sometimes successfully, of the Israeli people. And and did Satan succeed in causing Israel great pain through through that event, Antiochus Epiphanes, and through other events in history? Yes, yes, it did. But it wasn't fully successful. He didn't wipe out Israel. He didn't destroy the line of the Messiah. Uh, 33% might sound like a lot, but it's an abysmal grade on the test. I wouldn't say he would be happy with the result. And so I think this is interesting because it shows us that while our enemy should never be ignored, neither is he someone to live in fear of. Because our God is far greater, amen? He is far greater, and our enemy can't even come close to winning. He can't come close to winning. And yet, despite his losses, our enemy will keep banging his head against that wall until the Lord brings about his final judgment, which is why God has to, why God has to deal with him, because he won't stop. And so we see him here, that even though he was unsuccessful bringing all the angels on his side from taking heaven, you know, we read in, I think it's Isaiah chapter 7, where he discusses Satan's mindset when he said, I will go to the sides of the north, I will be like the most high. Yeah, that was the shortest rebellion ever. Even though he's unsuccessful there, he plants himself. It says he stood, which means he had taken his stand. He'd been waiting for this moment when this child would be delivered, that whenever it should be born, that's what as soon as means, whenever it should be born, that he would devour it. Satan camps out on his plan and he keeps rerunning the drill over and over again in the hopes that he'll eventually succeed. But as we see in verse five, he will not. And so she brought forth, verse 5, a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. But the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her a thousand, two hundred, and threescore days. Here we now have our third player in the end. It is this man-child is an unfortunate translation. It just means she gave birth to a male son. The second word for child here should not be translated child. It should just be translated offspring. Jesus is not a little baby anymore. He is a grown man, you know. And so the idea here is she brought forth her, a male son, which would rule all nations, was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And that clearly identifies the the male child, the male son as Jesus. In uh, Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, that messianic psalm that refers to the reign of Christ, in verses 7 through 9 it says, 
I will declare the decree. You, the Lord has said unto me, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. Ask of me and I shall give you the heathen for your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This concept of Jesus ruling with a rod of iron, the Messiah ruling with a rod of iron, that is so common throughout the Old Testament. It is everywhere in the Old Testament. This clearly is Jesus, which creates a problem for those who suggest the woman is the church because almost no one disagrees that the man-child here is Jesus. Um, that creates a problem, though, if you're saying that the woman in verse 1 is the church uh, because the church didn't birth Jesus. Jesus birthed us. The church is betrothed to Jesus, awaiting the marriage supper of the Lamb to celebrate the consummation of the marriage. I cannot imagine the Lord picturing the church as being pregnant when Paul describes us as a chaste virgin in 2 Corinthians 11.2. So I think that's bad theology. I think that's a bad way to approach interpreting the Scripture. Let the Scripture speak for itself. It speaks pretty clearly. So she brings forth the Messiah. She brings forth Jesus, who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And it mentions here that he was not devoured, but her child, her offspring, was caught up unto God into the throne. When it talks about Satan camping out to devour this child, it, it refers to all of Jesus' life, his birth, his life, and his death. Satan tried to destroy Jesus at every single one of those points in his life, you know, and while he caused much pain, remember when Jesus was born, what did he convince Herod to do? To slaughter every child that was two and under in a certain area, right? It mentions the scripture predicting that event in Jeremiah. Rachel weeping, weeping for all of her children that are lost. Great pain he caused in Israel. When Jesus, we see his life that he suffered under the hands of wicked men. Satan caused much pain to Jesus through that. And of course, through the, the crucifixion thinking he'd finally won. While the enemy caused great pain, he ultimately failed again because it mentions here that he did not devour the child, but her offspring was caught up unto God and to his throne. The word caught up means snatched away for the purpose of removing. Jesus was caught up unto heaven, snatched away, not to be touched by the enemy anymore. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us that, that even though the enemy did touch him on the cross, he did not hold him. For it says that we are to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Way back in Genesis, God you know, told Eve, he said, listen, your seed is going to, you know, he's going to crush the enemy's head, but he's going to bite bite his heel. And so did he get a bite in? He got a bite in, but he still was defeated. In fact, in the very moment where he thought he succeeded was the moment of his defeat. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14, verse 14, it tells us that it behooved Jesus, it became Jesus to be identified with us. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And that we don't have to fear death anymore because Jesus overcame it by rising from the dead. Amen? Jesus' death was supposed to be Satan's triumphant moment. Finally, success. But instead it was the place of Jesus' triumph. 
And while Jesus escapes the enemy's attempt to destroy him, we see in verse 6, however, that Israel is still exposed. The woman is still exposed on earth. And while Satan has brought incredible pain to the people of Israel since Jesus ascended to heaven, he still has not succeeded, and he still won't succeed. And thus, verse 6 now brings us to the current events that were introduced to us in chapter 11. In chapter 11, we saw that the Antichrist murders the two witnesses just before the seventh trumpet is blown. We know from Daniel and from Jesus that the Antichrist, after he does this, he will set up an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies, the abomination of desolation, and he will command all men to worship him and to take a mark on their hand or on their forehead to prove their loyalty to him. We know that the Israelis will refuse to comply with this and they'll be forced to flee from their lives because he'll seek to exterminate them. And so verse six tells us what happens when they flee. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Israel will flee from the Antichrist into the wilderness. This word usually refers to the region south of the Dead Sea, the area of Edom or the Negev. Well, it mentions here that they will flee to that area, that region of the Middle East, but it mentions they're going to go to a place that's been prepared by God, that's already been made ready by God to stay in. Interestingly, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 16, Jesus instructs those in Judea, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place as prophesied by Daniel the prophet, Then let those who are in Judea flee into the mountains. Interesting, the mountains. God is going to have somewhere in the mountains, south and east of Israel, because if you go straight south, it's not as mountainous. You have to move a little bit east, right, almost directly south of the Dead Sea to get to where the the mountains are in that desert region. He is going to have somewhere in those mountains southeast of Israel already stocked with food and other supplies to provide for the needs of these fleeing Israelis. Now, there is an interesting location right in that region. There's a place called the fortress city of Petra or Petra, depending upon who's explaining you how to pronounce it. It's located in a basin that is surrounded by the mountains in this region. It was the capital city of the ancient uh, Nabataeans, and you can only access that city through a three-quarter of a mile long narrow gorge. You can only fit maybe four or five people walking across. And the cliffs are just ginormous. So it was, they made it their capital because it was easy to defend. How are you going to, you know, it doesn't matter if you got more men, if you can only squeeze five at a time through this narrow gorge. And if you come through this narrow gorge called the Seek, you come into the fortress city of Petra. Petra, to this day, still has a working water conduit system. It has numerous buildings carved into the mountains. It is estimated that the city can hold five million people. Now, many Bible teachers believe this is the place God will prepare for them because of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 63, verse 1. In Isaiah 63, verse 1 Isaiah, as it is describing the Lord's return to Jerusalem to liberate the people of Israel there in the end times, he asks the question, who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his clothing, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And then the Lord answers Isaiah's question, it is I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. 
So we know that the Lord himself, when he returns to rescue Israel, before he comes to Jerusalem, he's going to go to somewhere in the region of Edom, particularly a place called Basra. Well, (laughs) Edom is the ancient name for modern-day Jordan. Basra is the ancient name of the region where the Nabataeans inhabited, and their capital city was Petra. Wherever the Jews will be provided for during the last years of the Great Tribulation may be, I think it is Petra, I may be wrong, but wherever it may be, it's going to be located somewhere in this region, because this is where Jesus comes from with his garments dyed in blood, the Bible says, spattered in blood, because he rescues those who are there first and then comes to liberate those in Jerusalem. And so, Petra makes sense to me, but I'm not going to die on that hill. If it's somewhere else and you got a good argument for it, you win. But I think it's Petra. Now, people ask the question, of course, well, will the, the whole narrow gorge and everything, that's all negated by modern weaponry. We just fly a smart bomb in there and blow it up. I understand that. So the, the question that we have to ask is, how will this place keep the Israelis who escaped the Antichrist safe? How can it? Well, it's because Israel's going to have supernatural help. Look at verse 7. And there was war in, not on earth, but in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. Now, what's interesting about that word there for war, there's war in heaven. It means open warfare. And this war is not going to occur on earth or start on earth. It's this open warfare is going to begin in heaven, not where the eyes of man can see. There has always been war in the spiritual realm between the faithful angels and between the fallen angels. We saw that in the book of Daniel. Remember when Daniel prayed and an angel came to deliver an answer and the angel said to him, he says, I've been delayed because I had to contend with the prince of Persia before coming to you. What does that mean? I'm not so sure. That's an interesting idea and I'd love to explore it. And we did a little bit when we went through the book of Daniel. But the idea is clearly there's some type of a battle going on all throughout the spiritual realm, all throughout time. But this is different. This battle doesn't occur on earth. It occurs in heaven. Heaven is a place that Satan and his angels were cast out of. However, they were still allowed to come into heaven. We see it in the book of Job, that the sons of God were called to present themselves before the Lord. And he asked Satan, what you been doing? And Satan says, I've been wandering to and fro throughout the earth. I love how he doesn't have the guts to say what he's doing because we know the end of that comes in Second Peter when it says, seeking to devour those, or First Peter, seeking to devour, you know, those who he's trying to deceive and, and tempt and all that. So he says, oh, I've been going through to throughout the earth. He goes, hey, you seen my servant Job? Ah, he only serves you because you're good to him. Fine. Don't touch him. Take his stuff, and then we'll see who's right. So they're allowed to come. They make accusations against us, and then they get permission to do things from the Lord. Well, when they waltz into heaven this time with whatever accusations or whatever they're going to bring, they're not going to find any listening ears. Michael and the angels are going to attack. They are going to take an offensive against Satan and his angels. There will be no conversation. And thus, this leads us to our fourth player who will be on the stage at the end times, Michael the archangel. Who is Michael? Well, Jude, verse 9, calls him the archangel, the chief of the angels. Daniel 10, 13 calls him one of the chief princes. 
He is one of the highest ranking, if not the highest ranking angel in God's service. Now, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, we read it in our scripture reading. I'll read it again briefly to you. But Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, says that at the time of the end, it says that Michael will stand up, the great prince, which stands for the children of your people. It says, during a time of trouble, such as has never been in any nation to that time, he will stand up for the people of Israel. So his job is to protect the Israeli people, and Daniel in chapter 12 is told that he will do so at this exact point in the tribulation period. In verse 7, it says it will happen at a time, times, and half a time. A year, two years, and half a year. Three and a half years into the great tribulation, Michael the archangel will stand up and intervene. Why does he need to stand up and intervene? Because of all the events we read about in chapter 11. When the Antichrist kills the two witnesses and he sets up this idol of himself in the Holy of Holies and the Israelis refuse to worship him and he begins to persecute them and try to exterminate them, they're going to need supernatural help. And he will do so. Michael the archangel will launch an offensive against Satan and his angels. Now, When we see here that Satan fights back and the dragon fought and his angels, we need to understand something. Satan is not God's opposite. God has no opposite. There is no opposite for him, okay? But, but, Satan was one of the cherubim that covered the Lord's throne, that cried out, holy, holy, holy. So if Satan does have an opposite, it would be Michael. They would be opposites of one another. And that makes this a contest between equals. This is not a time where God speaks and Satan falls to the earth like lightning, smashes, you know, face plants on the earth. This is a real fight, a real battle with real stakes. And so when Michael launches this offensive, it tells us that Satan launches a counterattack. He fights back. But this attempt (laughs) fails just the same. Verse 8. And he did not prevail. The phrase there means he was not strong enough. Whatever counterattack he launches is not strong enough. And as a result, it says, neither was their place found any more in heaven. At this point, they are now barred from heaven for good, never to enter it again. And the great dragon, verse 9, was cast out. They are thrown out of heaven completely. And then it clarifies for us, who is this great dragon? That old serpent, literally, that old snake from the garden. The one who started this whole mess. The devil, called the devil and Satan. And then it explains who he is. The one who is deceiving the entire world, all of mankind. The phrase there, the one which deceives, is the one who is continually causing others to stray from the truth. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he's describing the Pharisees, he says, you're not like your heavenly father. He says, look, you're like your, your father, the devil. In John 8, 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he did not remain in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan truly is a murderer, seeking to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But just as those who are rejecting Christ have run out of time, Satan's time is running out too. And we'll talk more about that next week because we're out of time this morning. (laughs) So we'll pick it up in verse 10. We'll try to get to the end of the chapter next week, see what the Lord does. So 
encourage you to come back for that. But you might be thinking, well, that's great, Will. That's interesting. I mean, that's going to happen someday. That's a thing. What about us, though? What does that mean for us today? You know, I think there's some interesting language in Daniel chapter 12 that it's easy to miss. For example, if you're Daniel, I mean, you're ultra curious. You're hearing about your people being like, uh, let me turn back and read, read about what the angel tells him in Daniel 12. When he says, in verse seven, it'll be a, a time, times, and a half a time, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people. I mean, how would you feel to be Daniel hearing that our people's power is gonna be scattered? That doesn't sound good. That, that sounds horrible. He's curious, of course. He's like, what does this mean? When will this happen? Well, how is it going to happen? I mean, he's got all these questions, and what does the angel tell him? Daniel, you're not going to get it. You're not going to understand it. It's not for your time. You seal up the prophecy. Well, what's interesting, when you get to the end of Revelation, John is specifically instructed, do not seal up the words of this prophecy, for the time is at hand. We, it is the end time now. So when we look back at Daniel chapter 12, it has a little bit different meaning to us than it did to Daniel because he couldn't understand some things. So what do we gather from this? We, we understand the final world stage is something that's just starting to be put in place or the final piece is being put in place, but, but we're not there yet. And yet Daniel 12 has something very interesting to say to us. It says in verse two that after this happens and, and, and you know, the enemy is crushed, it says many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and then some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. In other words, while these may be talking about events that are future to us, a stage that has not been fully set yet, when all is said and done, we will have a part to play one way or another. So here's my thought to leave you with this morning. Let's be those who shine like the stars. Amen? Let's be those who turn many to righteousness. We are not living in the, the days of the great tribulation, right? We're not under this oppression from the Antichrist. You know, we are living in a day of grace where God the Father is pouring out his mercy and grace and he's called us to occupy till he comes, right? So let's be those who are faithful until Jesus comes back. Let's be those who are turning many to righteousness that we might shine like the stars in the heaven. Let's all stand. If you're here this morning and you, you don't know the Lord, you've never repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ as your Savior, don't put it off. The Bible says that there will be those who awake unto everlasting life and those who awake to everlasting contempt and shame. You don't want to be in the one that's everlasting contempt and shame. You want to be with the Lord. And so if you've never done that, I encourage you, at the end of the service, you come see me or come see someone on the prayer team and, and make that commitment to Christ. But Lord, you, you see the rest of us here who, Lord, if we profess to know you, then our desire is to make you known. And so we ask that you'd baptize us anew and afresh in your Holy Spirit. Lord, give us boldness. Give us courage. Give us supernatural love, Lord, for those around us who don't know you yet. Lord, give us the words to say. Put words in our mouth, Lord, that by our, our words and then also by our deeds, 
Lord, that men would see the light shining in us, see you shining in us, the light of the world, and glorify you. Lord, we don't want to keep our lips tight in these days. We don't want to get sidetracked in other things that are not the main focus. You called us to make disciples. That's the Great Commission. You called us to occupy till you come. And so, Lord, we recommit ourselves to that task this morning. And we thank you for the power of your spirit to enable us to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.